Welcome back, gentlemen. I hope you all had a great holiday break. Yeah, not, I, both too long and and not long enough. You know, you you it's it's like it's that that awkward time period where you just sort of settle into having fewer adult responsibilities, and it's just all the more painful when they all come crashing back down on you. Yeah, and and I'm I'm you're still a little bit early, Dan, but I'm also in the phase where um you know. I, I spent most of my holidays kind of laid up sick because my, you know, one of my kids brought home something from, uh, you know, daycare and, uh, you know, it, it bothers them for a week. It bothers you for two or more. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good to be back in the, the, the clean and fresh air of, uh, of the office. <laughs> uh, pneumonia, RSV, uh, COVID, what, uh, you know, uh, take your pick. Uh, we've all probably had it all between the three of us in the last mm -hmm. uh, couple of weeks. So uh, so fun time had by all. And uh, welcome to the new reality of the post-Fauci era of uh, the way that we're going to be living our lives around the holiday season. Uh, this is Thunderdome, and we have plenty to talk about. Uh, there are obviously going to be, within the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, the first caucus and the first primary in the nation uh, when it comes to selecting the GOP nominees. I don't think that there's uh, probably going to be any attitude of change since the last time that we talked, but just in terms of your assessment of where things stand now versus where they stood about a month ago, the last time that we talked, uh, is anything really fundamentally changed in your mindset about what you expect to come out of both Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, John, uh, and then Dan? I, I think the only subtle thing is that at this point, and and look, I mean, it's you know, Ann Seltzer in Iowa, you know, with the Des Moines Register has not, uh, you know, hasn't dropped her final poll where we all you know really get to, you know, read the tea leaves or the chicken entrails or you know take take your pick crystal ball, um, but at least at this point, you know, based on you know kind of the polling averages, I think we may you know a month from now say that it turned out that Nikki Haley was really kind of the main competitor. You know, you know, so to speak, at least in sort of terms of, you know, win, place and show. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I think even like a couple of months ago, I think I'd have been, you know, I saw her as a top competitor, but I thought that the Santis was going to be the main foil. But I, I think that I think as we go through Iowa and New Hampshire and shortly thereafter, it, it seems like right now, you know, Haley is going to be kind of the plurality number two. But you know, short of that, I mean, I think it's, you know, we've been doing the, you know, this podcast for a, a little bit now. And I remember there were times where, you know, particularly when not full strength DeSantis, but fuller strength DeSantis, where Trump's uh, Trump's lead relative, you know, Trump was polling, say, in the, you know, the, the 40s or the low 50s. And, you know, now on the polling averages, he's, he's north of 60%. So if anything, it seems like he has been, he has strengthened inertia has worked for him at this point but you know i i think that we're on a pretty straight line toward a 2020 rematch and i you know short of you know health or problems with johnny law or you know some other kind of black swan event I, i'm i'd be hard to be persuaded that that's not where we're going yeah, I would I would say that the things that have changed for me and they're subtle in the last few weeks, and I don't disagree all that much with John, but the things that have changed in the last few weeks are, I think Haley is a realer threat in Iowa. Um, it's certainly not the smart money that she'll win, but I, she's a much she's a realer threat there than certainly I would have predicted by a lot. 
Um, and, you know, DeSantis's collapse is real. I think he's done too much groundwork in caucuses, especially Iowa, obviously. But the caucus system in particular is 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 not such that his support can really crater just because the nature how you get those votes and who shows up and the whole process. But, you know, his collapse in New Hampshire, the early states is all too real and and pretty devastating. Um, and, you know, they're already starting to be leaked reports about how he'll be, you know, out of the race the next morning after the caucuses. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know about that. I don't know about that report in, in particularly, but I do know his collapse is real. I know, you know, Haley's surge is, is pretty real, too. I mean, especially in, in North Carolina, where I think you have to treat, you know, all other things being equal with this, the relative weakness of early state polls and, you know, the 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 flaws in the polling and the problems in the polling in the last 10 years or so, you have to treat momentum seriously, especially when it's momentum against an incumbent. And I think that leads me to the to the, you know, third thing that I'm a little surprised, I, I guess, by or or at least didn't necessarily expect, which is I do think Trump has softened just a little as he's gone out and talked more to voters, especially in Iowa, uh, at in-person events, and as they've seen him, and as they're starting to pay more attention to the kind of stuff we've been pointing out for a while, um, which is that he's, you know, not, he's not 2016 Trump. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the same magic. He's old. He, he says weird things about magnets, you know, that, that sort of stuff. How do they work? Exactly. You know, the juggalo, the Trumpolo view on magnets, what, you know, but just all, all the kind of stuff we pointed out about how sort of meandering and low energy his, his rallies and unfunny his rallies have become, you know, I do think, you know, as he's been cajoled into doing more events in Iowa, as we get close, I mean, he's still way down the list versus Ramaswamy, who I think did 73,000 events in Iowa um, and then, you know, DeSantis, who did a healthy number of events, Haley a little bit less, and, and then all the way down the list is Trump. But, you know, nevertheless, those folks are tuning in. They're they're seeing a guy who's not quite the dynamo that he was in 2016. I think that there's a little bit of the margins. trajectory of the race fundamentally changing. I think that the numbers are just starting from too wide a set for that to happen. But I do think you, you have to admit that the contours of the race shifted a little as we get down to the okay. <laughs> as we get down to the wire okay um i do think that there's uh you know both the things that you've identified the the desantis uh campaign falling apart um the resignation of jeff Rowe, the you know situation there not being one that uh, you know clearly imbues any kind of of confidence going forward uh is something that is happening but is maybe happening a little too fast for uh, Haley to succeed. Uh, you know, you look at that situation as it goes forward and rolls forward from from New Hampshire. Donald Trump is running away uh, with the Nevada caucuses. At uh, you know, in the current uh, polling scenario, it's hard to see uh, Haley being very competitive in Nevada. Um, but I do think that you know, when you look at the situation in South Carolina, she actually has a real problem if DeSantis ends up dropping out before that state actually votes. Because if you look at where his voters go, as we've talked about before, you know, it's basically a 70-30 scenario of them choosing Trump over her. Uh, and that's a that's a big problem for her. There's there's not enough, uh, you know, juice there 
for her to basically find momentum from him exiting the race. But I also think that one of the other dynamics that this is really illustrative of, and it's a piece that I've I've written for the next issue of the Spectator in print, which you should all subscribe to if you're not subscribed already. Um, and it, it, it is essentially that the donors made a big mistake when it came to Haley. Uh, and that if they had been smarter earlier about their investments, uh, that she could have been a much a much more formidable candidate uh, and had uh, a much stronger campaign operation around her uh, than what she currently has, which is essentially throwing a ton of money very late in the game in Iowa in ads, uh, which just don't necessarily motivate people as much when it comes to the caucus experience. You know, we've seen that before. Obviously, Rick Santorum spent almost nothing on ads, you know, and almost, and, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the the candidates who win there traditionally, they are the people who get out there and glad hand and uh, do the work and put in the effort as opposed to being the ones who uh, do a top-down strategy. And so, uh, you know, that kind of ties into what I wanted to talk to you both about today, which is, I wrote this piece over the gap that we had about the regrets that different candidates might have about the way that they approached the 2024 cycle. Uh, and obviously, I think, you know, there's a lot of regrets to go around, you know, in a situation where you've had the field narrow as much as it has. Um, but I'm curious about the regrets that, you know, I've laid out that I thought that, you know, in the case of, of Ron DeSantis, the number one regret should have been hiring Jeff Rowe in the first place to run his super PAC side of his operation and then investing so much uh, assumptions in that super PAC operation. But the criticism that I had, uh, the regret that I had from Haley was that she didn't work harder to keep Tim Scott out of the race uh, because I think that that was something that was possible. Uh, I do think that it was possible to keep him out of the race. Uh, I do think that it was possible to have more donor investment uh, in her. And I think one of the reasons that she didn't get that early donor investment is because he was in the race uh, and that, and also because they had these hopes, these false hopes, and a lot of these other governors potentially jumping in uh, in ways uh, that were really fanciful and in, in retrospect, uh, look even more fanciful, just given the way that this whole thing played out. But I'm yeah. curious as to your your reactions to that, uh, uh, you know, and and what you think maybe some of the regrets are from from the different campaigns and candidates uh, who decided to get in and and how they got in and and what they did once they got in. You know, I I'm not sure. I don't know enough about their personal relationship or the relationship between their mutual donors to to be able to speak definitively about whether she could have kept. Pence is no, because I think on paper. Scott had a much better case than Haley did. Like, you know, if, you know, you're talking about it before this cycle actually unfolded and we saw the polling and we watched the debate performances, you know, I think Scott had a, a better case, a better natural constituency, um, a, a better path, you know, a better chance at threading the needle between Trump curious and, and anti-Trump constituencies in the GOP primary electorate. So with with Haley, I would just change the emphasis the way you said it just now, which is that, you know, yeah, are the are the donors to blame uh, well, for not being in her earlier? In a sense, yes, only because she was sort of the last, you know, process of elimination candidate for them to get behind a combination of kind of uh, chamber of commerce, GOP establishment friendly noises with at least a credible basement 
floor in the polling that made sense for them to get behind. I would say a, a lot of the people who really needed to back DeSantis in the big money camp, and there's really, we're talking about 10, 10 dudes, I mean, at the end of the day, they were already uncomfortable with him based on his second term kind of pivot to Rufo style, um, uh, you know, stakeholder capitalism um, and anti-woke, you know, uh, governance. And they were already uncomfortable with that. They were already uncomfortable with the stuff. They were already wavering and thinking about not getting behind them. And so, yes, they should have they should have seen the alternatives a little bit more clearly. I mean, to some extent, you can't you can't blame them for you know waiting to see where there was going to be at least a modicum of popular support before dumping a bunch of money behind Haley. Um, you know, but on the other hand, you know they 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 should have you know understood that there were a limited number of choices for them that would you know check all the right boxes, and uh, that they could put their put their money behind. I think she deserves a lot of the blame for just being, you know, as I said from the go, she didn't really, when she got into the race, she didn't really have a theory of why she was running. And I maintain that it's kind of a great historic. She's turned into um, the this surging figure here at the end. And again, it's by process of elimination. I think there's two pieces of recent evidence that happened since the break we last spoke that really get at how little thinking she has done about running in the year 2024 and what that means in a Republican primary, which is her obviously talk to death, disastrous civil war, non-answer where she just had never bothered to think about, you know, how her cultural valences and her, and her take on, on, on these sort of gotcha hot button issues should change, you know, between, you know, 2010 in, in front of a crowd in Charleston and 2024 in front of a crowd in New Hampshire or Iowa. She's never bothered to think about where the equities were and where the leverage was on issues like that for all the reasons that have been rehearsed a million times on a million other podcasts and written about. Um, and then similarly, her quiet part loud statement about how you know, New Hampshire corrects the mistakes of Iowa. You know, here's someone who's speaking like a fundraiser, who's speaking like a consultant in front of an electorate. And to me, that just shows that she ran because she sort of thought she was supposed to or because she thought that, you know, she was a great generic Republican, but she didn't give almost any thought to an actual theory of the case for how you would win this race. And she's kind of making it up as she goes along and polling kind of despite uh, her many missteps in trying to figure that out. I mean, say we, I'll, I'll shut up, but say what you will about DeSantis and we can get into his regrets a little bit more maybe next. But, you know, he had a very specific theory of how he was going to run this race. He just turned out to be disastrously wrong, but he was at least thinking in terms of the unique challenges of 24. And there's no evidence to me Haley is. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there, and 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 I think I agree with with a lot of that, Dan. I, I mean, I, I I'd say to some degree, you know, from what we've seen from the last year plus now, that they that all the candidates should have, and and I hate that this is mostly true, but biggest regret that they all share is that they ran at all, right? I, I think that it, it maybe. And I'll, I want to come back to one counterfactual that that might be the the one exception to what I'm about to say. But I, I think what we've seen over the last you know 12 months is 
the enduring strength of Donald Trump's popularity among a critical mass, a majority or a near majority of Republican voters is a first choice and, you know, in, in, in a price supermajority of Republican voters is a top one, top two choice. And it's, it's not clear to me that, so, you know, let's, let's dig into Haley. I think she, you know, she's sort of, she's actually been able to run, I think in a kind of a clever way is kind of the de facto, uh, I'm sorry, is, is a factional candidate for sort of, I'm not going to say never Trump. I'm going to say not Trump. Um, you know, because I think there are people that um, were not part of, you know, because I feel like the never Trump thing ended up being just sort of, you know, a lot of people who have become Democrats more or less, but people that were just yeah, never actually, on. can I, can I interject something on that? Yeah. I think that's a really good point, which is that never Trump is something of the past. It's, it's a, it's a 2016 laden term. And if you, I mean, from my perspective, if you voted for Hillary Clinton uh, and then you voted for Joe Biden, then you're a Democrat. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like, I mean, I don't judge that many of my friends are Democrats, but it's just, you, you are not, you are an ex Republican. You are an ex parrot. You know, this is not a, this is not a situation where you should define yourself as continuing to be, uh, you know, considered a Republican, you know, at best you could say, I am a Democrat leaning independent. Um, and, and that would be accurate, you know, for, I think a lot of these people, but the whole like basis of never Trump is in the past. It is not yeah. something that really exists anymore. So yes. And, and, and I think that, and, and Ben, I know you and I sort of share this label to some degree for ourselves of being kind of small L liberals, um, you know, which in America, right. We're on the right. We are on the political right. But uh, I think that just to sort of flesh that out, I think the not Trump, i.e. Trump is not our guy. But for but not for the reasons of I mean yes some of them are overlapping that you know maybe he's you know crass or you know says ridiculous things or I mean obviously the J six stuff I think is kind of you know disqualifying to some degree but um, you know a lot of the people that I would say are not Trump are probably people that are conservatives or you know sort of very traditional conservatives um, but you know I think Haley has ended up being kind of the repository for the not Trump vote. And yeah, there. I mean, there's going to be some overlap with the, you know, the 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 sort of the never Trump Republican remnant from 2016, who still are kind of ancestrally Republican and how they think about themselves. But you know, and I'm thinking really kind of like the New Hampshire kind of set here around this. Um, but becoming the candidate of that faction, I mean, you know, and it, as we've seen, I think too, with you know, kind of the Christie block. I mean, there's. There's probably a good 25% in most states um, or 20% in most states that just like, just don't, are not Trump people. And I think that Haley has become the place for those, for those folks to go. Um, I don't know. I don't, it's hard for me to see how she could ever have added on to that because um, I'm not sure where, where the, the marginal appeal is. Right. So you know, if she had more money earlier, like to, to, to what end, right? To who, you know, what, what was she like, what, what extra voter was she going to get that, you know, she hasn't gotten to already <laughs> going back to the Trump being sort of the second choice for kind of a wide range of them. And I'd, I'd be curious to see what the second choice is for a lot of the Haley voters. You know, I'm sure a non-trivial number of those are, are you know, president Trump. So 
I, I think that she will have, I mean, just by sort of by dint of, of luck and timing. And again, I think she's a reasonably skillful politician. You know, I think she'll have come out of this whole primary season somewhat enhanced. I don't know that there's like a huge like future down the line for her. Um, you know, because I, I think that sort of a post-Trump, post-Trump presidency or post-Trump eligibility for presidency, Republican Party is going to have to reckon with kind of the vacuum that, you know, his departure from, you know, national ballots is going to create. But, um, you know, I think that she'll, you know, people will say, hey, look, she did as good as anybody. She was the runner up to, to Trump. Uh, with, with DeSantis, I mean, I... I think that part, I think structurally, you know, at least from people that I trust, they're part of their theory of the case to have so much of the campaign operations, you know, wrapped up in sort of a, a separate super PAC that, you know, couldn't really coordinate, or can't really coordinate under elections law with the campaign, um, you know, was, will probably turned out to be a poor choice. I think that it might, if I had to say my biggest regret for DeSantis is that he should have come out. Q1, guns blazing, I'm running for president. Uh, I understand that there were you know, various reasons, even with sort of um, you know, his position. And because uh, was it in Florida, isn't it like if you're running for higher office, you have to you know, yeah. resign your seat or something? Like, I, I mean, there, there were a number of different things <laughs> that, that they had to deal with on a legislative level uh, in order to sort of enable him to run and continue to be governor. But but they needed to, I mean, for him, his 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 peak, right, was the was in a otherwise meh 2022 election night where Republicans just wiped the floor of Democrats in Florida. And he needed the slingshot off of that. I think that, you know, I think that they might've believed their own BS to some extent that he was the other, maybe not 800 pound gorilla, but a, you know, somebody who was going to be able to trade punches with Trump to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and that turned out not to be true. And I, I think that, we remember it's the, I can't remember what coach it was, but it's sort of like, you know, maybe this is just kind of who we are sort of thing. Um, you know, that you had the, the flop Twitter launch, you had, you know, a bunch of different things that like, they just could never get their footing. Right. And, uh, and I, I just, I mean, and look, I think those are kind of to some degree, like the only two, I, th- I think with Tim Scott, I think it was worth him running. I think he was interesting. And I think that was, for people that wanted to see if there was a case for a optimistic future looking, like let's all feel good America together kind of candidate. And, you know, for him, you know, is it worth testing the waters? You had a ton of, you know, cash on hand. You had a, you know, with Larry Ellison, somebody that was willing to, you know, help on the, you know, the pack side. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know what leverage Haley would have ever had with, with Scott. Cause it's not clear to me necessarily that even Scott wants to run for another term in the, the Senate. I mean, I, I hope he stays, but, um, you know, and, and with, with Ramaswamy's r- regrets, I mean, I don't know. I think he got what he wanted to out of that, which was a ton of attention for whatever gonzo shit that he wanted to come to the table with. Um, but again, I think like in some, I think, the I, bigger- so, I mean, uh, just to, for, for the record in, in my piece, I, I said that I think he, I think he unnecessarily burned too many bridges that he came in oh, yeah. as being someone who was basically liked by a lot of different factions and he leaves as someone who's liked by a narrow faction of universally despised yeah. and <laughs> universally despised. But I do, uh, just for the factual basis, um, uh, five thirty eight actually did an analysis a couple days ago, uh, where they looked at sort of where second choice, uh, voters would go. Uh, and it was interesting, uh, 
Trump and Haley, in terms of DeSantis, Trump basically gets more than half of DeSantis's uh, voters, uh, depending on what you look at. Suffolk USA today has as much as 67, but it's mostly like around like the 48 mark, uh, while Haley gets about 30 percent. Uh, you know, YouGov had it 34 um uh you know uh, clarity had it at 30 so it, it, the point is that like trump gets more of it but he doesn't get all of it which i think is interesting as for haley haley's uh backups are are desantis or chris christie um yeah. desantis gets about 38 to 40 percent as much as 50 in yougov um as low as 32 in suffolk and uh uh, but Christie gets about 21% of the uh, the Haley vote, which I think kind of says like that that's actually the number that reflects the not Trump, anti-Trump kind of portion to me. It's the 21% of Nikki Haley voters who still refuse to to go along with like a a an imitation imitation crab meat, imitation Trump. Uh and Trump that, gets Trump gets about 16% of her voters. So and that kind of, you know, those second choices kind of make sense to me at least. I mean, I think they're intuitive. You know, it. You know, it gets it gets to a, another point. I think that you can really corral DeSantis. You can corral Tim Scott. You can corral certainly Ramaswamy and even guys like Doug Burgum of all people into this same thing, which that it proved to be very a lot of it proved to be very difficult to to be credible with the donor class and sort of sane kind of. Um, you know, main street, suburban, college-educated voters. We can talk about that. The 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 Jonathan Martin piece, I think, too, about class in the in the primary. Yeah, go it ahead and run be, through that. Actually, yeah, this, I think it, it's good. I, I'd like to hear John's response to it. Too. Uh, I yeah, thought it was it an interesting piece, and I don't, I don't, I will say, I don't always say that about J. Mark pieces. Sometimes they, I think he nails it in a little bit, uh, uh, but sometimes he comes across something that I think is a very interesting angle of analysis. And, uh, and in yeah, case, and we should we good. should transition to it. But I think I think the point is that. It, to that set, but to also do stuff or speak in a way, or if you're an elected official, especially an executive in a state like DeSantis, to do stuff that simultaneously signaled that you were not going to be a business as usual Republican, you're not going to be a Mike DeWine, you were not going to be that sort of chamber of commerce republican you you were going to be willing to stand up on things like the culture wars and on things like immigration that are serious problems that are 60 40 problems in america they are not niche republican issues but they demand a kind of standing up in the face of the blob um and the elite consensus and and it just proved very difficult for all those candidates to do i i thought about doug burton because i knew we were going to talk about this today and i thought well like okay what's the what's the guy we all kind of like to pulled at a rounding error what what could he have done differently and to me the thing that came to my head immediately was based mike lee okay because mike lee i have my problems with his turn you know in the last five or six years God knows, but he kind of figured out that he was this serious constitutionalist guy, very well educated, smarter than all of us put together, serious policy guy. But he also got the memo on Trump and what appealed about Trump's politics and a lot of other senators, mainly in the Senate, less so in the House, where I think it's just straight grift. But a lot of other GOP senators, you could tick off six of them from Marco Rubio, um, you know, on the sort of uh, reasonable side to, um, you know, take your pick, uh, uh, 
Tom, not Tom Cotton, uh, Josh Hawley, you know, right? I think they got the memo on, you know, how to sort of mix up their Ivy League pedigrees and serious policy chops with a little bit of bread and circuses. And also with the new maneuvering room that they have in our world to get hardcore on some of this culture war stuff. There's now just an appetite with swing voters and with, like I said, 60, 60 40 splits on some of these issues to just go against the blob on this stuff. And that just proved really difficult for all these candidates to pull off. And Ramaswamy in the other direction, right? Ramaswamy in some ways, what, you know, if Burgum was a serious guy who would probably make a fine chief executive who just didn't get the bread and circuses part, Ramaswamy is a serious guy who elected to do all bread and circuses and, and show no evidence that he was actually sane or reasonable or had ever read a white paper in his life. And so nobody really found that mix. I mean, DeSantis was the biggest disaster of a flame out. Um, but, you know, none of the other candidates were able to really find that mix. Which sort of begs the question of whether it was ever possible, right? You know, how, how much of, how much of the Trump magic is actually Trump, right? That it's, um, it is the, the secret sauce is, is the guy itself and no one else, you know, no matter how clever of a, you know, alternative to it to try to mimic the real thing, you know, and, and even, you know, even this Trump, you know, Trump 24 relative to Trump 16, um, you know, where some of the magic feels like the fun, the fun is gone. Right. Um, uh, you know, it's, is is he able to do it to the same degree? I mean, I think there's sort of that brand loyalty for his s supporters at this point, but I, I think it goes back to a, a question that that I continue to have about Republican voters. I think you could say the same thing for a lot for a lot of Democratic voters too, but it, it's it's unclear to me, you know, here now in the the year of our Lord, you know, 2024, what the American people really want from their political leadership and from their government. Um, because if you look at where fundraising dollars flow, where you look at where eyeballs flow, it seems to be more kind of this, you know, WWE sports entertainment kind of thing that, you know, props up guys like Matt Gates, uh, for example. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, sort of, you know, the, the Romney 12 campaign is kind of the, you know, the sort of the polar opposite example, right? We've got like the 57, you know, point plan. And, you know, we've got, you know, an Excel spreadsheet that goes out to, you know, three letters on columns and, you know, the tenth, you know, tens of thousands of numbers on rows to, you know, make it all right. It's some, you know, sort of galaxy brain kind of response to how to handle things. And, and I, you know, having this conversation with friends of mine that, you know, a friend of mine that used to be the executive director of a, you know, Republican state party and you know, a guy who I think is, you know, sort of a, a populist bent himself. And his take was just like with, you know, with sort of social media and cable news and that kind of stuff that, I mean, his thing, his sense is to basically despair drives, you know, the, it's not like the people, you know, people still want like sort of good and safe schools and safe streets and that kind of stuff. But he, he is of the belief, my friend that, there's just so much despair among American voters that, you know, if the ship's going down, they just want to be kind of entertained as it happens. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure what I think about that, but like, it, it, it feels right. I mean, like if you had a candidate that could credibly say, look, we're going to deal with these three big problems that, 
the people seem to have, you know, whether it's crime or immigration or whatever. And, and people, I think, could even be reasonably convinced that that individual would be able to handle those issues. Are they going to choose that guy or that lady relative to somebody that's going to say, I'm going to say gonzo shit, but I'm going to make you laugh or I'm going to make you hate the other guy. I'm going to make you feel something, right? Where it becomes sort of this like semi-scripted reality TV exercise. You know, I, I just wonder how much American voters want stuff now and how much of it is just wanting to be entertained. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, that's obviously the situation that we have in, in the Congress at the moment where uh, Mike Johnson, the speaker, is discovering that uh, he has the same uh, elements at play that Kevin McCarthy as speaker had. Uh, and people are flipping out about it and everyone's uh, just uh, kind of laughing at the situation being exactly the same as it was before or or in, in some ways actually worse, you know, worse, just yeah. given the, the incapacity of Johnson, who's never had an office of more than like 15 people to sort of manage the scenario. Well, it's unsustainable too. the the, the thing I want to pick up on. And it's not where we I thought this conversation was going necessarily. But the thing I want to pick up on that John said is. You know where does the bread and circuses stuff play? Where does the where does the Gonzo WWE stuff play? It plays in isolated seats, and is it only plays until you get redistricted to a you know D plus one or an R plus one. You know the the the, the fun can plays in in, in isolated house seats. It plays in purple states whose state GOP infrastructure is dissolving. Hence, you get. Terry Lakes of the world, where the state's GOP infrastructure is heading the exact opposite direction and it's falling apart. And in purple states where state GOPs, due to for all the reasons we've we've talked about before and could get it, are becoming weaker and weaker, uh, you know, versus the national party um, and national individual political figures and PACs. You know, in those places where the party infrastructure is falling apart, the bread and circuses stuff plays. It doesn't play with state executives, really. And I think, again, DeSantis is the evidence there, right? It mattered. If DeSantis had had Yunkin's approach to governing in his second term, or even just something a little more put together than he actually did, I think that money, that big billionaire money, big mega donor money wouldn't have been as scared and things would have looked a lot differently. You would have gotten some of those billionaires who backed DeSantis in his first term lining up behind him. But instead, he did the thing with Disney right at the gate, which just looked amateurish. It looked like it wasn't thought through. It scared the shit out of business owners. And it just looked like he was he was feeding red meat to the base instead of, you know, having Rufo-esque, you know, 27-point to, you know, screw over the wokesters. It just looked like he was throwing crap against the wall. So, you know, that stuff plays when you're when you're safe or you're you're running in a little district in North Florida. It's tougher when you actually have to run a government. Mm -hmm. John, John uh, uh, quick from you. I, I think that the I think the part I, I think I agree with a lot of that, Dan, but I think the part you're leaving out is that and it, it's it's one that I think a lot of us that have just been that really care about like kind of the, the policy stuff. Um, it goes back to sort of the George, Jeb Bush, you know, observation 2016 of like, you know, trying to lose, you know, I'm going to have to like lose the primary to win the general. And everyone then realized that like, well, you, to get to the general, you have to win the primary. And, I, and, and at times I feel like with, you know, sort of tying it back that, Hale, and I think that Jonathan Martin makes this piece that it seems like that 
DeSantis and Haley have forgotten that they're in a primary against an overwhelming hegemon and are just kind of like running against each other, but to like to what end, right? I mean, like to be second place. Um, I don't know that I love Glenn Youngkin. I, I love Glenn Youngkin and I love, I love Ron DeSantis, <laughs> but I love Glenn Youngkin. Um, yeah, right. I mean, why I love come... politicians don't like, like just generally. Princes. Yeah. But who, who left the love, right? I mean, do you want to love Bruce Springsteen? He'll let you down too. Um, um, I love, I love you guys. I love Jim Harbaugh. Um, That's who I love. I freaking love Jim Harbaugh. I love Lamp. <laughs> I love Lamp. Yeah, right. I mean, look, the uh, body Jim... craves contact. <laughs> I, I was um, born to, to play football, coach football, and then die. die. <laughs> um, but I was going somewhere, but I just I never got. Yeah, we'll no, 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 no. I, I I get what you're saying. It, what, what you're saying is basically that there's certain there's certain politicians that appeal to you in, in terms of the ideal, and I think that what we're really taking away from all of this is that none of these politicians lived up to the ideal. Uh, and I'm not sure that even if they had, that they would have been able to beat, as you said, this dominant uh, hegemon of a effectively incumbent politician with invested in all the uh, hope and trust of a vast majority of the party uh, and uh, allayed with martyrdom thanks to the lawfare of Democrats uh, who thought that it would benefit them uh, and who are going to end up with him as a candidate uh, and roll the dice on that being a good idea which I think is much riskier than they think it is. So uh, with that, uh, this has been another edition of Thunderdome. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with more to guide you through this insane 2024 election.